0: Welcome to Big Blend Radio with your hosts, Lisa and Nancy, editors of BigBlendMagazine.com.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome to Big Blend Radio's Nature Connection show, where every fourth Friday, along with our special guest co-host, fine art nature photographer, Margot Carrera, We talk about nature, we talk about wildlife science, the environment, and today we're excited to welcome Peter Alagona. He's Mm -hmm. a professor of environmental studies at the University of California in Santa Barbara, where you think it's really nice and cool. Today we're recording in summer and there's a heat wave, Um, but this is airing in October, so by that time he may be cooled off a little. Uh, But he is the author of a number of articles, uh, you know, expert articles, and also the book After the Grizzly, Endangered Species and the Politics of Place in California. And he's joining us for his latest book. And uh, this is really, it's just so timely and important. It is called The Accidental Ecosystem, People and Wildlife in American Cities. And you can go to his website, PeterAlagona.com. So Peter, welcome to the show. How are you?
0: I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa, Nancy, and Margo.
1: Hey, we're glad to have Mm -hmm. you here. Um, We love our Nature Connection show because, you know, we're really trying Um, to get everyone to understand that we do need to protect the environment and nature and everyone can argue about climate change how it is there but we do need to look at the changes and I think what's so important about your book is that it's looking at the habitat we've done mm-hmm. I mean Nancy and I've been in, in Margo conservation <laughs> work for too many years like in, in in our like people will think we're old now but we're not. <laughs> souls. But we've okay. done a lot of it in many countries. And, um, you know, we talk about wildlife conservation a lot. And we've done a lot of shows on this and, and work, like I was saying, and it was always about save the wildlife from poachers and, and illegal trafficking and, and all of that, which is absolutely true. However, I always kept going, if we're screwing up the habitat, we have nothing. And I feel like your book is kind of really showing us why are we seeing, you know, cougars in the backyard, not, not women cougars. <laughs> Just gonna oh, say. All uh, oh, see, because I'm going to go that I, way. i am been so much trouble already. <laughs> but, um, but you okay. know what I mean, like, and we have to look at. <laughs> you know why are why are we like getting rid of our deer and why do we need to have wildlife highways which mm-hmm. are really important these wildlife corridors i think yes. your, your book um the accidental ecosystem i want to say accidental tourist because that's what nancy and i are but the accidental ecosystem is important because it it's not it's it's a we're in a bad situation but you do bring hope
0: well, I think that you're right you know traditionally when people thought you know going back uh, a century or more about conserving wildlife and even in you know into the post-war period it was mainly about uh, establishing appropriate sustainable hunting regulations and fishing regulations and these yes. sorts of things. also abating pollution which is a uh, continues to be a big problem as well as some yes. other issues like um, exotic species you know but today I think that um, conservation conservationists, conservation biologists really do focus largely on habitat. Uh, understanding that you know, without conserving and restoring habitats and all these other measures that we might, uh, that we might take uh, would probably be, be likely to, to not succeed or, or even to fail, uh, fail pretty spectacularly. And so habitat is crucial. I think one of the reasons that I, I wrote this book and got in, interested in this topic, studying urban wildlife and urban ecology, is that people don't normally think of cities as habitat. When you okay. see the word habitat, they think of forests, they think of coral mm-hmm. reefs, they think of grasslands, you know, these mm-hmm. places that we traditionally associate with, with kind of nature, quote unquote. But one of the things that's so fascinating um, about this topic is that over the last uh, few generations, more and more wild creatures of more and more kinds, including many that were never expected to thrive in cities, have arrived in cities or have returned to cities. Uh, And so we now we now have a situation where uh, throughout the United States, uh, other parts of North America, and even going to Europe, parts of East Asia, even my colleagues uh, who work in places like Brazil tell me this, that cities are attracting more and more wildlife. There's Mm -hmm. a booming literature, academic literature on this. Uh, but I think a lot of folks in their communities look around and they say, hey, what's going on? You know, why are we seeing all these creatures that we never saw before? The reason has to do in large part with habitat. We got to this point and uh, this is what this book really tries to explain. Is there
1: also a part of mm-hmm. the animals also coming from that area? I remember mm-hmm. once we were in the Sequoias, a Sequoia National Park and with a park ranger, a friend, and she's saying, every time we went to Paradise Meadow and, oh my gosh. it's so beautiful there I love it there um she would say that you know we would see this deer this and we were I think we were probably going the same time of year Mm -hmm. as you know deer and her two you know her babies and um and I kept going like they're always here but like Mm -hmm. we're going year after year after year and she's like well a family will live in this area I mean they Mm -hmm. don't really go that far out within a few miles this is their habitat Mm-hmm. And so I wonder about birds um, and how they migrate, that they know that this is their stop. Um, and do they just move out when we start to move in? So in it's- the park, they're protected, but we it, they are on a walkway where people are walking by. But um, it's in is their it DNA in their DNA to go to those places.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, um, uh, about three weeks ago, I was fortunate to be um, in Alaska. Went to Katmai National Ooh,
3: Park, nice, go, no way, dude.
0: Where you can go. No, I'm walk jealous. Walk I'm on, jealous. Oh yeah, it's amazing. Where you mm-hmm. can go there and walk on the beach and, and see uh, brown bears, um, very close cool. up. Cool. And so I, awesome. you know, and I, I actually work with bears and I study bears as a, a project. Um, oh, in a, in a awesome. Uh, but you know, when I came back and I showed my friends and colleagues some of my photos, they were like shocked. They said, you know, how can you be out there those close to that close to those animals? And I said, mm-hmm. you know. In general, not always, but in general, animals are pretty predictable. People mm-hmm. are pretty unpredictable, right? Yep. And so that is that's the case on an individual basis, largely for most creatures uh, that can, mm-hmm. for example, become a little bit habituated to people, which allows you to view bears in places like catmine. Uh, but it also happens on much larger scales in terms of populations. One of the first things I learned as I was doing research on this book is that in North America, in particular. In the United States especially, it's not quite as true for some other regions of the world. Uh, we built many of our biggest and what became most prosperous cities in places that were unusually biologically rich, productive and diverse prior to the city being established there. And there's a bunch of reasons why that is. One reason is that these were often places that were easy to get in and out of, transportation, rivers, and uh, harbors Mm -hmm. like this. Another reason is that those places had resources for people to harvest during the early days of of urban development, which often involved, you know, trade posts, for example, outposts uh, for furs and and logs and things like this uh, in more frontier areas. Another interesting reason, and this is particularly the case where I live uh, in California, is that in those really rich areas, there were also large and prosperous indigenous communities and so when the Spanish-speaking Spanish uh, missionaries came over to California to establish their missions, they did it in the areas where the biggest indigenous communities were, which were also some of the most biologically rich areas. And so we did this, then we built these cities, we kicked out a lot of the animals, we you know, kind of flattened a lot of the habitats. But then over time, people started to do things like plant trees, like clean up pollution, like clean up rivers, restore wetlands. Uh, create parks, these sorts of things. And so we now live in cities, many of us who live in big cities, uh, which includes, you know, something like 82% of Americans live in urban areas, about 95% of Californians do. Uh, These cities are now in places where wild animals naturally come Mm -hmm. and where they have been doing so in some cases for millennia. And so as soon as we gave them a bit of a chance to come back, they started to come back. And so mm-hmm. that's part what this story about, is about is not just animals arriving in someplace new for the first time, but about them coming back to places where they had always migrated to or passed through or gravitated to or come mm-hmm. in, mm. in the past in deep history, going back more than centuries.
2: So Ooh, I this love
3: this. Is, this is about us not being able to integrate with them. Actually, this is our problem We created it, we messed it up. This is about us not feeling part of nature. It's about us trying to control nature. Good luck with that. I would like to see a person who can control an earthquake. Stand Mm -hmm. up. Do I hear anybody? No, okay. So the idea of controlling nature should exit the building, exit the brain stop it because we're just messing up and making it worse so now the animals get comfy now they are oh i get that's a city environment that's what they're doing now oh cool like bears you you you're into bears well bears love trash cans they're like oh it's like going to mcdonald's just draw it's a drive up go get the (laughs) just go to trash cans oh then they go, Wednesday is trash day. Yippee, here comes the bears. One place we stayed in Colorado on trash day. Here comes the bears. Because they know. they know. You know, and not only do they smell it, they've got the time clock. They know Wednesday is trash day. People put the trash out at night because they don't want to bother because it's too early in the morning to get up and put it out on the sidewalk in the morning. So the bears come at night. One place we stayed. It was cool. It was like, it's better than TV. Just look mm. out the window, watch the bears tip over the trash cans. Because that's what they
1: they learned to do. We taught them. We taught mm. them. I think, Nancy, it kind bad. of reminds me of taught me about driving in the bush at a very young age and yeah. when you get stuck, <laughs> the last thing you do is keep trying to get out of the rut that you've dug, that hole mm-hmm. and if you do, you're going to have the big hole and yeah, you're not going to dull. get the car out and and I have been stuck out in the middle of the desert, Anza Borrego <laughs> I remember that and going no, no, no and I had a friend, a guy who was like, no, no, just keep, I'm like no, 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 we need mm-hmm. trees, we need leaves, we need we need traction, and I think that kind of goes with what your book is. You're providing us that traction, so we can learn to move forward from what Nancy's talking
2: about.
0: <laughs> well, you know, we have dramatically modified uh, habitats, you know, yeah. all over the world, all the way down to the the deep it's oceans uh, to Antarctica to, to everywhere. And so, mm-hmm. you know, this is a world that's that is in large part transformed by human action. I mean, going down right right to the basic. Physics, chemistry, and biology of the total Earth system. We're, we're transforming uh, everything. But if we look at, at urban areas in particular, you know, one, one fascinating thing is that a lot of the creatures, uh, you know, mammals, uh, birds, etc., that you might commonly see in urban areas actually aren't eating uh, refuse. They aren't eating, uh, you know, mm-hmm. human waste. Uh, they're there participating in complex ecosystems. Some creatures are there to take advantage of those kind of surplus resources, what some ecologists call subsidies. You know, think like pizza rat, you know, dragging a, yeah. a, or a slice of New York, you know, extra thing close mm-hmm. this pie down the subway stairs. Uh, but mm-hmm. you know, the, the coyotes uh, in that, you know, in that area aren't necessarily doing that, but they are eating uh, some of the rodents that are perhaps-
3: that getting, are coming in. Yeah, mm-hmm.
0: and getting a benefit from human food. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think that there's something to to recognize about this though, which is kind of one of the most, in a way, like profound but also kind of obvious insights of this whole thing, is that if you look at the creatures that tend to do well in urban areas, mm-hmm. they have a few specific qualities that seem to occur over and over again. And so one is that they tend to be fairly social, which means they mm-hmm. can probably be around large numbers of, of their kind, of their species. They tend to be uh, active parents, which means that they rear their young and teach their young lessons. Uh, they tend to be relatively flexible behaviorally. Maybe they have uh, relatively large brains, but they tend to be sort of, have a bunch of different behaviors, not just one or two that they repeat over and over again. They tend to be omnivores, which goes along mm-hmm. with that flexibility, try new kinds of foods, because you have a
2: variety of things eat. Mm-hmm.
0: But you know, if you add all those things together, what does it sound like? A human. Exactly. It sounds like a human. And so I'm not here to tell your listeners that rats are like them or that they're like rats, but there is a reason that we use rats as model organisms for biomedical research. There are also reasons why rats do particularly well in human dominated environments. They have some basic biological qualities that make them a little bit like us, And so it's not that surprising that they could share that environment with us. Mm -hmm. And so this is just something to remember when Mm -hmm. people say, oh, you know, bears are, you know, a trash panda or something like that. Well, actually, you know, the bear is there um, harvesting because it is perfectly capable of eating the same foods that we do. It is a Mm long-lived parental Mm -hmm. long right? Mm -hmm. And that's why why we're in these spaces. That's why we're gravitating toward these similar resources.
1: I love this because I think it, Gets people Mm -hmm. to understand, um, to coexist, you know, that we can Mm -hmm. coexist uh, with everyone because, um, you know, it's even where we right now we're recording this we're on a farm in North Carolina and i mean there's spiders everywhere and marco no. you know we've talked about this they're not listening to us about go to your side but they come and and we're trying to balance there's it so out. many and spiders i don't want to kill the spiders but no. no i mean i i'm harvesting vegetables with my hands and going in and going all right dude you're over there i'm going here but i think it's cool what you're doing because mm-hmm. over there if you're not there this is getting chowed down by this moth over here so like I'm really in this zone. I, I'm learning about farming. I mean, mm-hmm. this, is, this is like so much bigger than your regular garden kind of thing. And I'm going, I don't know how our farmers do this because it's all organic. I don't know how. I mean, it, this is stressful, yet at the same time magical because you are actually with nature and doing it. So watching these spiders to me is you. You. you can cohabitate with them. I mean, I have a friend who had a bed and breakfast years ago and a farm, but she's retired now that had a black widow that lived in one of the rooms and she just didn't tell them because the black widow didn't that's come like, dude, to that, dude. which I know is that she's not doing it anymore, but I'm just yeah. saying, you know, I'm just saying that there's something people want to kill everything. Um, I know. Pests. The word pest is coyote is a pest Um, when we lived out in uh, 29 palms outside joshua tree park we could see the entrance from our house so there were there was we went through a drought time and we had a coyote coyote come up to our door and he was you know he he had lost a leg so he he was three-legged he was elder Mm -hmm. and we opened up the Mm -hmm. garage we had cats inside we had all the feral cats in the neighborhood lived with us and yeah. we never had snakes. We didn't have. And eggs. the roadrunner. runner we had, we had the Everybody road runner. lived together, and the mm-hmm. coyotes. We all managed, but this coyote came in and really needed mm-hmm. it, and people got mad. But we gave, we him, gave water. him water and eggs. We and gave him eggs. whatever he needed, because mm-hmm. there was no place for him to. Go and he was,
3: that and and then he he went. There was a vacant lot across from us, from our house, and he went, and he would sleep flat down in the vacant lot and watch us, you know, because basically, he also peed in our garage. Yeah, he peed on everything, but, and it really smelled <laughs> wonderful, you know, it was like a but it, but coyote managed, perfume.
1: But we no, this ecosystem, we didn't yeah, manage it, and, but everybody found their way. If and you the read,
3: coyote, the coyote wait. didn't hurt anyone. Everybody's all freaky about it. The coyote, Basically, we gave him food and water and shade. That's what we gave him. And um, he was wonderful to watch. And he sat and guarded our doorstep. And I have no doubt in my mind that if something bad would be happening to one of us on our property, he would have interjected himself. I have no doubt in my mind about it. we never made any attempts to capture or pet him. We just gave him what he needed and he was loyal and just sank into the landscape. Hardly anybody knew he was there. The only way people would know is if we told them. Until a house down the block, some druggies lived in it, blew their the perfect hole What's in their going on roof. down there
1: at that time, yeah. Yeah.
3: And um Everyone bailed. Every yeah, he the coyote bailed, and people moved out, and
1: that, that us. Was,
3: yeah, <laughs> It was an interesting experiment in human behavior that ruined everything. But um, I don't know what's going with. Yeah, this, what, I was going
1: to say what what would you think about what, that, if Peter? Yeah, in I regards mean, to where, I mean, I wouldn't say feed disturbed. the animals, but it was a day. It was a day where that yeah. animal really it was i mean it gets to it got to over 120 i mean we were death yeah. valley records mm-hmm. heat at that point and if there's no water and it's a drought what do you do you know we actually yeah. did have some wildlife people saying at that point just be kind if you can but it's not oh we shouldn't be going out feeding animals like don't go into yellowstone and start mm-hmm. feeding animals and no, things I'm, like that okay. but from okay. from where no, hold gonna, on but,
3: Okay, go ahead. i was gonna say where i was going with that story the night that the house down the street blew up we had 19 or 20 feral cats on our roof and a roadrunner. The coyote bailed, and we never saw him again. But the I, what got me was the 19 feral cats were on our rooftop. And at the very peak was the roadrunner who just, I mean, you would think the cats would take out the roadrunner. No, nope. they're all watching the fire just like we were going, OK, what's going to happen now? Hmm. And that was also the time when the police decided they weren't going to service 29 Palms anymore in that area. Oh, good! Mm-hmm.
1: Now we're going to have the city after us. <laughs> Thanks. <Nancy>. Yeah, <laughs> through, well, through the military. Let's get just back
4: to the book. I know it's really <laughs> no, true. I'm militant, just saying.
2: Military. I know. So yeah, I have a good. question. Yeah.
4: Yeah. So regarding the book, um, so you, this, I'm really grateful that you're bringing this to the attention. of of people. And um, obviously, it's becoming uh, more and more um, observable, uh, especially since COVID. Um, What kind of solutions are out there for us to create an ecosystem where we can all get along together? Do you have any ideas on that?
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Margaret. That's a great question. And, you know, I have to say before I it that, um, you know, listening to you all tell these uh, stories is a big part of my experience of, of writing this book. And I, I actually say right at the beginning
2: mm-hmm. that,
0: um, one thing I learned very early on is that when you talk about this subject, when you bring it up, when I would tell people that I was working on something like this, they would immediately start telling me a story. Mm-hmm. And so here's the thing, um, is that the stories usually, to me as a kind of scholar, right, the stories I quickly realized often told me more about the people than about the animals, even though the stories were supposed to be about the animals, right? They, they tell me about how people are relating, how people are experiencing this, how people are understanding uh, or trying to relate or connect with these, these issues and these other creatures. And so, you know, so for me, uh, it's such a big part of it. Um, is, is really listening to those stories, understanding them, and trying to put them together in ways that help me to, to better understand you know, how, how people uh, are making meaning uh, of these changes seeing mm. out there in these shared spaces, these shared habitats, these shared ecosystems. So um, in terms of solutions, um, I can say a bunch of things about that, but um, let, me, let me say this, that this book is called The Accidental Ecosystem. In part because one of the main arguments that I make in it is that wild creatures uh, returned to or arrived in for the first time many of our cities uh, over the last, you know, four or five decades. um, For reasons that uh, relating to decisions that people often had made decades earlier and for other reasons, so people didn't you know plant tree lined streets. Uh, mm. to try to attract squirrels. They did it because they realized that it might be good for climate, for human health and well-being, these sorts of things. Same with parks. Um, same with cleaning up pollution in urban areas. And so these things ended up kind of bringing wildlife back, but it wasn't that wasn't their intent. So it was a little bit accidental. Uh, what I'm trying to say at the end of the book, really, is that now that we're in this situation where we have all these creatures, then maybe we should think about moving toward away from an accidental urban ecosystem toward a more intentional one. And I think mm-hmm. that that's the solution question you're getting out, where do we want to go with mm-hmm. this? Yes. And so, right. um, so what I would say is that this isn't just all unfolding naturally, but we're also not, uh, you know, as Nancy said, in total control, but we can kind of direct these things. Uh, to date, in very few communities have people actually sat down and said, what kind of an ecosystem do we want our city to be? What kinds of wild creatures do we want more of and what, which ones do we want fewer of? Uh, and so, you know, even just starting to have that conversation, which is also the point of this book, to get people talking, and that's why I'm so thankful that you're covering this in your podcast, uh, is to get people talking about this. You know, what do we want? Maybe in, co- in our communities, maybe in my community, I want more owls and fewer rats. Well, that can, those two things can actually go along together. Mm-hmm. And in many, uh, in some farms now, people are actually bringing in owls, uh, establishing mm-hmm. owl boxes to control gophers and moles and other rural right. in farm fields. And so this is the kind of thing that potentially um, can happen in more urban areas as well. There's a long tradition of placing nest boxes in urban areas uh, by groups like Audubon and others. But in terms of actually like where the, the change happens is I think maybe what, what you might wanna know, um, I think it happens really on a couple of levels. Uh, one is at the individual level. Some of us are fortunate enough to live in homes where we have uh, yards um, or at least a little bit of landscaping around us. Some of us aren't, but maybe we have access to things like uh, community gardens or parks or can, can participate in uh, our schools and how they're managed. Um, and so on the individual level, uh, people can think about you know the kinds of ecosystems they want to live in, think about the kinds of. Uh, by thinking about the kinds of uh, ways that they manage their little plots of space. And so do you want to, for example, plant native vegetation? Do you want to to plant Mm drought-tolerant vegetation? Do you want to be out there, uh, you know, spraying a lot of insecticides? What kinds of flowering or fruiting plants are you putting in the ground? And when they flower and fruit, what is that going to attract, right? These are things that a lot of folks don't really think about. They just think, I want some pretty flowers. They don't necessarily Mm -hmm. think that in a year when that thing fruits, it's gonna attract rats, right? And so um, so thinking about that a little bit more would, act, would help a lot. But then there's this other level, which is a little bit, I have to admit, it's a little bit boring, but it's really important. And that is that in the United States, the vast majority of land use planning happens through what are called county general plans. In every state across the country, counties are required to produce general plans that have different elements. So there'll be a transportation element, there'll be a parks and recreation element, there'll be an education element, a housing element, all of these different components of how the county is planning for the future based on its investments, its infrastructure, its design. So most people don't participate in this process, but it's a big deal. Yeah. And by thinking a little bit more and engaging a little bit more about how when we plan transportation, we can think about wildlife. When we plan parks, can we think about wildlife and ecosystems? When we think about education in our schools, can we oh. think about that a little bit? And so, by continuing that conversation and infusing this, which is an issue that covers a bunch of those different kinds of elements of planning areas, then I think we can start to go from just the individual level to thinking more as a community about the kind of habitat we want to live in. Hmm.
1: I love that because when you talk about county, A lot of times Mm -hmm. people, if you live in an unincorporated area, you're more (laughs) county based than if you're living in the city. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's a true, we've done both. And when you look at transportation, we're seeing a lot of good things happen, being travelers on the road full time. We see, I know, Margo, you've heard us talk about rest areas with monarch (laughs) gardens and pollinator gardens, even in Indiana, Missouri. Ohio, mm-hmm. New York, uh, upstate New York, we've seen them in those areas, but it's really when you go to these rest areas, and it's funny because they kind of go in those corridors when you were talking about how mm-hmm. people and where these wildlife, where we built our cities, it kind of those trails follow something, and there's always water as a thing, Yeah, um, but always. the transportation thing is a big deal, and mm-hmm. You know, if we can utilize and do these wildlife corridors more, you know, we're doing more like Wyoming was one of the first states to do it, I think, with a huge, you know, car like highway for wildlife. It not only saves wildlife, but it saves our lives, too. You know, the mm-hmm. more deer we're hitting, the more human beings are getting hurt and cars are being mm-hmm. smashed, you know. So it's mm-hmm. a, this is a everything you're talking about, you know, the accidental ecosystem to me is yeah, we're kind of creating a new world. You know, they talk about, you know, post-COVID is the new normal. I think we can look at this as a rebirth, actually, even climate change. I know this sounds nutty, but if we can look at this chance of things are crazy, but we have this moment now to work together and Create a better future that's co- more coexistent, not just between people and animals, but like all of us, people and people working together. If we could just work on that, maybe the rest of the people stuff will figure itself out.
0: Well, you know, I think you know? Margo, you're both kind of pointing in the same direction of where do we go, mm-hmm. right? Um, mm-hmm. how, can we, how can we build? How can we create solutions? And so I think you're right. I mean, um, you know, the, there's not a whole lot to, to celebrate right now um, in terms of the environmental trends and biodiversity and climate change um, in recent years, but people are starting to, to do much more, right? I mean, we have action at the state and federal levels. We have action at the local level on a variety of different fronts and lots of important investments. And so that is something really um, to build on. And it's a big part of the reason that I, I wrote this book. You know, um, my previous work before the accidental ecosystem largely focused on endangered species, and there mm-hmm. are not a lot of uh, happy stories to be told there. Yeah. And when you start uh, working on that and studying that and trying to tell those stories, the stories you end up telling are basically stories about people fighting with each other. Mm-hmm. And so, so yeah. I was kind of wanting to go a different direction with with this project, recenter the animals and say not you know what does it mean that people are fighting each, with each other, but how can we move toward coexistence, co-adaptation through things like investments, as you say, in in corridors. You know, if I could just bring up an example, um, a lot of cities uh, in in previous generations uh, would look at the rivers going through them. If they weren't uh, avenues for transportation, then they were just problems in a way, right? And so Mm. we channelized them, we built right up to banks, we tried to complete Mm -hmm. them and shoot as much water out as possible. Uh, to control floods. And that, that hasn't worked well for a lot of different reasons. It's, it's ended floods uh, in many areas, uh, stream floods, but it's caused a whole bunch of other problems. Mm-hmm. So now what a lot of cities are doing is they're saying, okay, you know, um, if we back up from the stream wherever we can, or if we prevent new development, right, then what we can do is we can use these spaces, we can store these spaces, and we can use them as open space recreation areas, uh, or educational areas for 99% of all the time. Right, the 1% of the time that these areas flood it won't cause a lot of property damage. It'll occur naturally, and then the floods will subside. It'll recharge the aquifer with groundwater, and it will provide corridors for wildlife mm-hmm. to travel. And so you have health and wellness benefits. You have private property benefits. You know you have open space and recreation benefits. You have wildlife benefits. And so finding places where all of these things can kind of happen, you know, in, in concert with each other. Uh, none of these decisions are easy. There's always another side. There's, you know, there's mm-hmm. another vested interest. But I, a lot of places are moving toward these kinds of things in part because they provide multiple benefits at relatively low cost.
1: Because it, I think this is a huge deal because we're talking about water, which is really- right when that's we get down to it that's problem. what we're all going to fight over is water and air mm-hmm. and water. you know we look at mm-hmm. uh waterways like the colorado river the nile of this country and that's a huge issue look at lake mead right now you could you yeah. go to lake mead and what dead body wow. you going to pick up you know that's where it's at and so there's you know i look at where margo is because i know margo's land very well <laughs> you know that region <laughs> mm-hmm. san diego and um san diego like encinitas and carlsbad cardiff you've got the san alejo lagoons the the lagoon Mm. areas people have really Mm. understood and i think it's because of the surfing community too it's always been about what how do we clean our waterways and you know looking at these lagoon areas Mm. and you know it's like whenever you're on the coast you're at the end but you're at the beginning (laughs) it's like that weird thing um but we do i mean i find what you're talking about so fascinating because where humans settled there's always a water source mm-hmm. and that's why the animals are there too so we're all exactly. wanting this water but we're, we're fighting same over things. it but to keep it clean is huge saying are you seeing you know is, is the activism i know you've only got back to san diego over the last few years marco but is it still there with our with the lagoons like san alejo and and down there? yeah by Cardiff? Yeah, and the
4: group you're talking about is a surf rider organization. Oh, we love mm. them. Yeah, and they really are on it for the keeping the beaches clean and awesome. Um, they Encinitas has transformed its walking ways. There's beautiful walking ways that people can go, so, uh, and bicycle lanes so people aren't getting hurt bicycling and um, just. Um, yeah, it, that particular corridor has really been uh, renewing things like the lagoon uh, just recently had a huge uh, uh, renovation and uh, they, it was every once in a while it would close up because the sand would kind of migrate and block the lagoon and then it would get stagnant. And But they they always go and they dredge it out and, and that whole area, the water area is even larger, and the, there's a preserve there now. And yeah, they, they really are focused on, on keeping that a- area natural and open.
1: I think that's the important thing is having it, is. it where you have to have mm-hmm. the people element, but then let the nature element have its own side. You know what well, I mean like a heron will come in and hang mm-hmm. out with the people but it needs its rookery away from the people. You know what yeah, I mean? Exactly.
3: <laughs> yeah, and who wants to live in a place where there's no well we can't live in a place where there's no plants or trees. It'd be ugly to start with and you wouldn't be able to breathe. So, you know, hello note to self, let's say plants and trees and along with that here comes oh shoot, here comes birds. Oh no. Hey. Yeah, I mean, really, what it, what is it that we're willing to give up for our concrete and our?
1: I'm so against concrete. I, just I think, remember. I think, but then I think yeah. it's not giving you know, up everything. I think that's the no, thing about there's the got accidental it, ecosystem you don't have to give up everything. I don't, it's but okay. On the one hand, I
3: like your title. On the other hand, it wasn't an accident. It's all about dollar signs the decisions ah. people have made. It's always been about dollar signs. It wasn't accidental.
0: So, so <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> I, think that that is, I think that that is a fantastic point. So the accidental part is the unintended consequence mm-hmm. of right. those very intentional decisions. Unintended consequence being that some of these creatures mm-hmm. came back when no one really was yeah. trying to bring them back. But I think you're absolutely right. And this is a great point. That, you know these decisions were made for particular reasons right in particular mm-hmm. logics and particular historical moments we're in a different historical moment hopefully with a different logic um, occurred okay. here and and maybe maybe that mm-hmm. can give us reason to make different kinds of intentional decisions that will inevitably mm-hmm. themselves have their own accidental consequences I know but
3: down the road but, somebody's gonna go yeah. 40 years later look back and go what did you do?" <laughs> <laughs>
0: I I have a hard time believing that if we're greening our cities, if we're cleaning up pollution, if we're providing more access to open space, and if we're also doing important things like providing housing,
2: mm -hmm.
0: uh, sanitation, which is absolutely crucial. You can't, gentrification is not the answer to environmental problems.
3: Exactly. Exactly. Uh, Oh, I'm so glad you said that. We
0: have to go together. Uh, But I have a hard time believing that if we work hard on those issues, the people in the future are going to blame us for them. Exactly. I think yeah. that there is room for people to um, play the kinds of roles that were played by the early founders of, you know, the national park system. You know, mm-hmm. we, we look at the national parks now, and we know that the, the founding of those places was in many, in many cases, very, very problematic. You know, people kicked mm-hmm. out of their homes to create these things. But at the same time, I think we also recognize that the benefits that have accrued from having these spaces available to the public are tremendous, right? And not mm-hmm. have taken over just by private industry. And so you know, I think that there are opportunities for people now to play those kinds of roles in urban ecosystems uh, that people will look back in the future as being imperfect, but thankful uh, mm-hmm. that, they, that they didn't go uh, a different direction.
1: I think it's also a time for right, right. businesses mm-hmm. to stand up. I mean, we're seeing a lot of changes happening in regards to how corporate corporations are treating their employees. And we're seeing more of a, you know, I think COVID did that. It's like, hello, you know, we we need childcare, we need thing, we need, you know, look at what's happening mm-hmm. in California with you, where you guys are, with the uh, Fast uh, Recovery Act for fast food workers and people fighting like, oh, well, people shouldn't have fast food as a business, uh, as their employment, and some people really need it because we have shifted. If you think about mm-hmm. the last twenty-five to thirty years not just this country globally we have shifted in industry we are going from coal to solar we are you know that's just one example we have shifted from printing magazines to being digital Mm -hmm. we have shifted our industries as a whole have shifted which means people are in a shift and doing jobs they never thought because they're providing for their family i mean it's not exactly cheap to go to school. So everything is in a big shift. And when we're in a shift, it's where you have to start going, okay, we can't always have gray water 100%. We have to start putting some stakes in. And one way is through our natural environment, because it feeds our souls too. It really, really, really does. And so I think now is a time for corporate America to also look at, okay, if we're going to have these big buildings, now people aren't in them. What are we going to do with them? Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe malls can become more apartments and that's happening, but also just looking at their land, doing more uh, monarch, you know, way stations, mother- butterfly way stations. If you've got a retail outlet, why not look at, you know, having like, you know, the National Wildlife Federation certified wildlife habitat with the, you know, butterflies and pollinator mm-hmm. gardens, the more we do that, that it's out there. The the importance. We started our tour documenting national parks, national park service units. So Mm -hmm. there was a whole education of no. We're not just talking about Yosemite's. We're talking about national monuments. We're talking about you know like Cabrillo in San Diego, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh, you know you've got the Channel Islands near you, Peter. You know, Um, Mm -hmm. but we were doing the smaller parks, and then now we do every single park because every single park matters. And now our tours love your parks tour because it is about if you have a pocket mm-hmm. park just a tiny little square it means of land everything it means everything it could be mm-hmm. a place for a person to get shade it could be a place for a kid to play it could, and dogs to hang out oh. and a you know yeah. maybe one bird nest you know it no, it doesn't matter because no matter how small that space is the more we have of them the less of a dead zone we are creating and that's the thing, and and that's how when you talk about the accidental ecosystem, I think those animals were there, and those birds, and all of the critters, spiders included. But yes. now, if we create these places, <laughs> and not just in like we we're talking about gentrification, yeah, we've got to put more of that greenery in places and neighborhoods that have Absolutely. been ignored. You know, we we've, we've got to look at as everyone talks the ghettos. Well, green them, green them up. People will be green healthier up and up. happier.
0: Yeah. So, so there's, I, I, I agree with you. There's, there is a caveat to that though. And I think it's important to, to, to talk about and mm. for your listeners to be aware of too, which is that there is an, a, a, idea in the academic literature called ecological gentrification. And the notion there is that when you, uh, uh, plant trees, when you create parks, when you clean up an area, um, you tend to attract investment and increase the cost of living, uh, mm. Including mm-hmm. housing costs in those areas, and so mm-hmm. I, there are a lot of communities, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in, in urban areas, um, uh, diverse, you know, communities with a lot of people who've lived around there for for a long time, who said, you know, we don't want all that. You know, when, when I see you creating a new park, it looks to me like building a Whole Foods, and you know, pretty soon taxes go up. Right. Yep. And so and so, mm-hmm. um, I think one of the really important planning challenges now is to accept the fact that we need way more and better higher quality housing uh, and infrastructure and services for for these communities that enable people uh, to, to stay because these resources like housing aren't so scarce. Uh, well, at the same time, uh, you know, planning for, uh, you know, green these communities so that people don't, mm-hmm. you know, don't have to choose between uh, you know, staying in a, a community where they they are rooted and live for a long time, but where the cost of living has skyrocketed, you know, versus um, you know moving it out to to another place that may be systematically uh, disinvested uh, or vulnerable in other ways, and so that's a real mm-hmm. planning challenge. Uh, it's a really huge challenge. challenge. It's, huge. Yeah, it's
3: huge. Like we we did an interview with people from American Forest Jadili, and we learned, right? yeah, Jadeli, and we learned that the communities. Historically, without trees, are all black.
0: There have been okay, uh, in the, in the so, 1990s,
3: so yeah, that mm-hmm. you know, and, and it's not that the black people voted for no trees, yeah. it
2: just it's not
3: just black, has, it's diverse, and it's not, but poverty, it's yeah, yeah, and some Latino areas where the income level didn't warrant the city planting trees because if they raised the taxes so much, people wouldn't be able to pay up. So that low-income neighborhoods um, historically didn't have as many trees as high-income neighborhoods. So if we could level it out, and I'm not a communist, so don't go there. I'm just saying, because I don't know what will happen, um, if we level it out so that we're looking more at the entirety of the of the country and the entirety of the Earth instead of our one little spot on it, we would do a much better
0: job. Well, you know, th- I think that's a great point. In the 1990s, the National Science Foundation funded a couple of long-term ecological research sites in urban areas. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was in uh, there was a competitive bidding process. One was in Phoenix uh, and still is, and one was in Baltimore. And in the Baltimore study, mm-hmm. long-term study, um, that's one of the things they did is they pioneered some of these methods of looking, for example, at uh, inequities. Uh, mm. race, class, uh, gender, income, language, et cetera, housing, related to different kinds of environmental factors like mm. cover, greenness, um, you know, uh, exposure to uh, air pollution, these sorts of things. And the, the results that came out of that are not surprising to any of us, right? And these have been replicated now in many, um, in many other places. And so uh, you know, saying something like tree equity is something that's very easy for some people to sort of poke fun at. But you know, if you're uh, homeless and you're live and you're in Phoenix, uh, tree yeah. equity could be a life. Is
3: massive mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> a difference between communities that um, you know have canopy cover, for example, and those mm-hmm. that In some cases, can be ten or fifteen degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, yeah, which be the difference between something that's tolerable and something uh, situation that's that's really not and quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah, everybody should be aware of these things and be thinking of solutions that uh, enable, you know, more equality uh, socially, uh, while also increasing um, equality and access uh, ecologically.
1: I love that. I think they do go hand in hand. I mean, it's, and Mm -hmm. we are part of nature. We are living things, beings. Before we go, Margo, do you have any questions or comments for Peter?
4: Now I'm I'm just glad you are opening the conversation and this is the conversation we're wanting to have on this show mm-hmm. so thank you for joining us.
2: It's mm,
1: fantastic what you're doing. Um, mm-hmm. I've I've got to go read about the grizzly bears now. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I got to get into that because I think we got to take care. They're well, they're just one of those species in California too. I mean, when you go to Sequoia National Park and you see that it's not the same bear that's on the California flag. I'm just saying, people. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. so. well,
0: yes, I, I've been uh, back in 2016. I. I uh, started a group here at UCSB that's taken the first look in, in uh, many years at the serious uh, research-based look at the past and maybe potential future of grizzly bears in California, which have been extinct here for almost a century. Uh, but there are reasons to believe that now is a good time to, to start the conversation about um, both a, a fresh look at the way they lived here and why they disappeared, but also whether they can mm-hmm. One thing I will say though, is that uh, fortunately, There's relatively little overlap between these two projects. There are only a couple cities in the United States where brown bears are uh, common, (laughs) and in those areas, um, it's it's kind of a challenge. Uh, Anchorage is one of them. Uh, Jackson uh, Hole in Wyoming has had some brown bears wandering around the city in recent years, for the first time in a long time. Uh, But but that's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about is trying to um, accommodate the creatures that are moving through urban areas, that are trying to find patches of natural habitat that are enriching our environments and creating these uh, diverse multi-species communities, which I think is Mm -hmm. a benefit to everyone.
1: And bears are part of it. We were just in Asheville, North Carolina, Mm -hmm. and there are bears going through neighborhoods like you wouldn't believe, but they're tagged. People know about them and it's, you know, um, it's part of life. And it's a cool thing when you can see them go through. And mm-hmm. if you, they can be in your neighborhood. Well, they'll go after your hummingbird feeders. <laughs> they'll, get, they'll get into the bird. <laughs> but it's like it's. But they're part of it, and it's kind of interesting to be in these communities as we travel to see how are the communities dealing with a diverse ecosystem. And things like bears, you know, hanging out, you know, they're not on the Blue Ridge Parkway always, but they you'll find them in the neighborhoods. So it's a very interesting thing is how are the communities handling that? You know, how are they handling snakes? How are they handling, you know, the creatures and spiders? Um, I think I think what's really great, yeah, back to spider, but I think what's great about it, like Margot said, that it opened up a conversation and like you're saying, people have stories about. Oh, my gosh, one day I came home and there was a black bear sitting on my back door, you know, porch, or, you know, there's makes people kind of um, it's humbling when you're in the presence of nature, you know, and so I think, Mm -hmm. hopefully that will connect us all to do more for nature Mm -hmm. and for us so we really appreciate you joining us and everyone the book again Peter alagona the book is the accidental ecosystem people and wildlife in american cities uh, You can keep up with peter on his website peteralagona.com, and also of course keep up with us at bigblendradio.com we're here every fourth friday with Margot carrera and i encourage you to go look at her artwork go to carrerafineartgallery.com mm-hmm. so thank you all for joining us thank you peter
2: thank, thank you, you. so much yeah. for having me.